When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grazie and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 181, Cromwell's Contentious Administration. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed your New Year's break. For those of you listening while when this goes live, uh, for all of you listening in the future, it was Christmas and New Year's just this past week. And uh, we took a little break here at the Welsh History Podcast. So I hope you uh, had a good win. And uh, hopefully 2023 is a good year for you, and uh, we hope to continue this trot down history lane and uh, bring up a lot of cool and interesting things as we continue. And with that, let's get started. On January 30th, 1649, Charles I, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, was put to death by execution. The first king to be publicly executed in England since historical records were kept. Before this, kings were killed on the battlefield in the medieval period or died in mysterious circumstances or of natural causes, but none had been publicly killed. In fact, no king since Richard III had ever died in battle, which meant that for the last 200 years, kings and queens generally died of natural causes, or at least causes that would not be identified as being by axe or sword. This level of stability has meant that there were many that were used to this, that the idea of a king or a queen by divine right of God seemingly to be the natural way of the world was something that drove a lot of the mentality that people had. It claimed the idea and the concept that the handing down of legacy from these kings and queens is something that was important and something that was necessary. It was, as I said, the way the world worked. Think about right now in our own places that we live if you've had long years of stability, of peaceful handovers of government, to have that suddenly change is something so drastic and unthought of that you struggle to understand how it could even happen. And so thus it was similar in this world. For conservative Wales to the radicals of Scotland, no one had really saw a world without a king. But now Puritan radicals had their wish. They, not the king, were the rulers, and at their head was Oliver Cromwell. Whether this was for good or for ill was yet to be decided. Certainly royalists would not find it to their liking, but that didn't mean that everyone was dissatisfied or unhappy. However, in March of 1649, the Parliament banned the monarchy in the House of Lords for the first time in the history of England, and it itself was declared a republic. Wales was now governed by a rump parliament directly instead of 
by the previous council, which had been led typically by the Prince of Wales or people that were appointed to represent them, at least for the last 200 or so years. Because this group was filled with radicals, conservatives, and moderates, almost nothing happened during this rule of this rump parliament from 1648 to 1653. The new Commonwealth might have support in some quarters of Wales, but there were no majority of people that did so, and few would say that the desires of the Puritans were in the thoughts or acceptance even of the majority of the Welsh. In 1650, a man by the name of Vavasor Powell, I hope, arrived back in Wales. He was an itinerant preacher who had been a radical for a long time and had been involved with run-ins with the government on a number of occasions. The local Welsh government had not looked at him fondly before the Civil War, and he was arrested on two occasions specifically because of his attitude and his radicalism. Eventually, he fled to London, where he continued to preach and remained politically active. In 1646, when Parliament's victory was certain, Powell returned to Wales, having received a certificate of character from the Westminster Assembly. Although he had refused to be ordained by the Presbyterians, with a salary granted to him by the Parliament, he resumed his itinerant preaching in Wales. In 1650, Parliament appointed a commission for the better of the propagation of the preaching of the gospel in Wales, with Powell acting as one of the principal advisors to this body. For three years, he actively was employed in removing from their parishes those ministers whom he regarded as incompetent, or likely those who did not preach the way of God in the way that he and others like him approved. This was something of a tactic that the Puritans had been using for quite some time. If they didn't like your version of the gospel, or if they thought that you weren't being Puritan enough, for lack of a better word, uh, you could find yourself on the outs pretty quickly, and by that, meaning you lose your job at least, and in some cases be charged with all sorts of crimes. In 1653, Cromwell brought the rump parliament to an end, and with it came rise of Puritan politics. This concept of the world was based on the idea that it was near its end, and that Christ was nearing his arrival. This played heavily into thinking of these politicians, so their desire to save their fellow citizens now outweighed any attempts at a democracy or a design of a measured moderation in government. The radicalism rather than creating a government with purpose, instead saw that Cromwell would be disturbed and concerned by their attitudes and by their desires. He suddenly became much more afraid of what they were trying to do, much more so than what he was worried about the public doing, and saw their support, or lack thereof, as being problematic. So, he eventually returned to a more conservative and military-led government. This meant that the establishment of the protectorate, as he called it, and his monarch-like rule was not that dissimilar from the kings he had replaced. In fact, some would argue that Charles I and James I's rule looked very similar to this. In Wales, some of the Puritan leaders felt that Cromwell had become an apostate, as he had abandoned their radical 
apocalyptic vision for one of his own, one that was based a little bit more on the reality of the circumstance and situation during this period in time. This led people like Powell to begin to preach against the government and to work to protect Wales against this new Cromwell Commonwealth. Yet, even if Powell despised Cromwell, Powell hated the monarchy even more. When men gathered on the Welsh border for the cause of the royalists, it was Powell who came to confront them with his own followers. This meant that, of course, he was doing so for himself, of course, but also to protect from a return of the royalists. And as we'll see, he did have some very important allies in Cromwell's government, which helped protect him and his followers. The militarization of Wales, however, continued unabated during this period as control of the country slowly fell to military leaders who Cromwell trusted. His own paranoia was growing, and so anyone who seemed to be even slightly disloyal had to go. And so it was that in 1655, specifically in August of 1655, Major General James Barry was put in charge of Wales, along with some surrounding counties, to foster good government, but also more than likely to dig out those with royalist leanings. Barry had been a Cromwell loyalist for a while, serving as Captain Lieutenant during the Battle of Gainsbury in 1643. He had served in the army during the fights to the end of the war and was granted the ability to announce Cromwell's victory in London in 1647. After the civil wars were over, Barry purchased the former residence of the Bishop of Lincoln, and during 1654, he was appointed to the Commission of Ejectors for Lincolnshire, with the authority to expel inadequate ministers and schoolmasters, as once again we've mentioned in the past, this was something that was happening across England and Wales, where effectively the Puritans started to look at anybody who wasn't the right kind of leadership and got rid of them. In March of 1655, Barry took part in the suppression of the Royalist uprising at Rutherford Abbey in Nottinghamshire, which was part of the abortive insurrection that culminated in Penruddock's uprising. So this was a loyalist in many measures, and Barry was a proven leader in battle and in politics, something very much needed by Cromwell. Barry was appointed, as I said before, Major General for Herefordshire, Shropshire, Worcestershire, and Wales. During the rule of the Major Generals, his jurisdiction was the largest of the twelve regions, and the deputies that were appointed to help him administer it were some of the cream, in quotes, of the Cromwell crop. Barry was one of the most radical major generals in matters of religion, and it was this radicalism that meant he had somewhat a positive relationship with Powell, yet he was still a trusted ally of Cromwell, something that seems almost the opposite of each other, but was important for the managing of Wales because Powell was a key voice at the time. In 1656, Barry was elected to the Second Protectorate Parliament as MP for Worcestershire. He was also one of the few major generals who urged Cromwell to actually take the crown and become the King of England. Barry was appointed to Cromwell's upper house in 1657. 
as we get closer to the end of the protectorate, you start to see that more and more it's taking on the appearance of something of a return to the monarchy and a return to the same noble houses running the government and the control that that gave them, something that was important to both those who were rich and those in Cromwell's government as this push and desire was seen to bring Oliver into the role as monarch once more. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. All through these years, one thing that both young and old, poor and rich in Wales agreed on was that tax collection was evil and that the collectors were the worst kind of people. They were not just coming for the rich royalists and their pounds, but that they also sought the pennies as well. This meant that bards, for example, of course, always funded by the rich and wealthy, would write nasty comments about these tax collectors who were cutting into their own profits. Many towns in Wales held certain numbers of these tax collectors in such disrepute that they were remembered and reviled long after they were long gone, much like the bards who would 
write stories and poems and songs, basically deriding and disabusing them, this would be similar in these towns where these people were held in such disreputable positions. Of course, one of the side effects of this is that whenever these tax collectors were cited, most people headed into the hills to avoid them rather than paid them. This, combined with their suspicions, likely correct, that many of these administrators were happily skimming off of the top of all these taxes they claimed for the government, meant that they were well and truly someone you wanted to avoid. The parliament needed, of course, this funding. However, since they needed to pay off the debts that had been accumulating since the Civil War, and the only way they were going to get it paid off was by effectively getting money from the public. So to them, it was worth a little skimming if it meant that the coffers were filled. Royal sympathies in the old Principality of Wales remained strong as the Welsh North and West continued to be loyal to their former kings, and thus the arrival of these parliamentary preachers and these tax clients trying to either convert them or seize their land or money did not create loyalists out of them and certainly did not convert a lot of people to their cause. But this continued pressure to conform coming from these outsiders created a great deal of animosity amongst the local Welsh people. Occasionally, the animosity became a lot more than that, as Daniel Wise, a tax collector, would find out. He himself was sentenced to death by a Welsh jury over his killing of a man during t his tax collection. Likely, Wise did this because he himself was under threat of violence. But, nonetheless, his conviction was overturned by Barry, who I'm sure did not win friends in Wales when he did this. That is not to say that there were not honest tax collectors who did their duty and retained no money in their jobs. Some of these people were religious stalwarts who believed in the honest collection of taxes and in turning it over to their masters as a method of fulfilling their duty to God and to man. But of course, that didn't mean they were the majority. Certainly, that was not the case. And certainly, that did not mean that there weren't those who did try and take advantage. One of the biggest beneficiaries of these administrative duties was a South Welsh man by the name of Philip Jones, a follower of Cromwell who used his influence to create financial benefits for himself. As historian Garrett Jenkins described it, by 1650, he had virtually was the ruler of South Wales, assuming powers of a dictator and using his authority to strip landholders of their acres. He exploited the land markets at will and, outside of that, was seen as a, for lack of a better word, a mafia thug. Jones's power and influence in the government meant that he had a free hand to acquire all the land at will and used his connections to frustrate and anger many in Wales. He gained thousands and thousands of pounds, which he then used to buy even more land, and in methods and ways that were rumored to be quite despicable, although none of that is, of course, proven. Frustrating these Welshmen even more was that Jones was never brought to account for his wealth generation, and he actually retired an enormously wealthy man, completely safe in his wealth.
One last thing to talk about in this particular episode that I wanted to bring up, especially as we've just passed the Christmas season. In 1645, Parliament introduced a new Directory of Public Worship designed as a replacement for the Book of Common Prayer, which had been written during Tudor times, setting out a new form of worship for the Anglican Church. It was said that Christmas, Easter, and other festivals were no longer to be observed with special services or celebrations, something that would be almost a thousand years in duration by this point. The outright ban came in June of 1647 when Parliament passed an ordinance banning Christmas, Easter, and Whitsun festivities, services, and celebrations, including festivities in the home, with fines for non-compliance, although they were introduced a monthly secular public holiday, the equivalent of a modern bank holiday, instead. The Christmas ban was so unpopular that there were riots in Kent and elsewhere in 1647, although some of these may have been an excuse for pro-royalist rebels to cause trouble rather than strictly a protest against the loss of Christmas. A popular ballad, The World Turned Upside Down, was published to decry this ban. By 1652, Parliament had passed laws reinforcing the Christmas ban with fines for staging or attending Christmas services and shops ordered to remain open on Christmas Day, a very modern debate, one might say. The pamphlet The Vindication of Christmas was published that year arguing against these laws. There was an attempt to enforce the ban more rigorously in some parts of the country during the Christmas of 1655, as England and Wales were under this military rule that we mentioned earlier, the so-called rule of the major generals. Some of these attempts to crack down had some limited success, but practice varied in different parts of the country and were never completely successful. By 1656, Parliament was complaining that many people were simply ignoring the ban, that even in London shops remained shut and festivals continued, with MPs being kept awake by the sounds of Christmas parties next to their houses. How dare they? An attempt at further legislation got no further than the first reading. The Council of State reminded the authorities in London in 1657 to keep enforcing the ban. Outside the capital, it's again unclear if this happened or was effective in any way. Like many moral bans, the ban on Christmas was largely unenforceable, particularly in the early modern state, which did not have either the machinery of a modern government or even something that would even remotely look like a police force. Similar bans in the past, such as the medieval sumptuary law enforcing rules on fashion, had been ineffective and pretty much not worth the paper they were written on. It can be argued that it was as much an expression of disapproval rather than any real hope that it would be followed, obeyed, or enforced. Of course, when we come to this question, what was Cromwell's involvement with all of this? How did he react or act in dealing with these bans on holidays? Cromwell himself had very little role in the introduction of the ban, being more concerned with the prosecution of the war at the time. He was, however, present during the passing of the 1644 ban, although more concerned with the passing of the self-denying ordinance. 
Crucially, he was absent from Parliament when the key ban was passed in 1647, and at the time was under threat of arrest himself by the House of Commons for supporting the army in their protest or pay. Cromwell may have approved the law, we really don't know. He was the member of this party, and the Puritans never made any actions to repeal the ban, so thus he didn't show any desire to remove it. And none of his speeches or letters just seem to mention it at all. So we don't really know his position, but likely, much like everyone else, it comes down to the fact that how do you enforce this in the House? It's all well and good to say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You can't be doing this. I don't like the fact that you're doing this. But like a lot of laws in the world, they only really go into a household if you have some way to enforce it. And realistically, at this time, in a world where there is no such thing as a police force, where maintaining law and order was strictly about trying to keep people from robbing somebody on the road, or maybe enforcing it in cities, there's little that you can really control. And especially outside of major centers, you're almost incapable of enforcing any of this. You can see this in Wales. I mean, the tax collection issue that we've talked about shows that while the government had intentions on collecting financing, they also had an acceptance that illegally money was going to be skimmed off this because the state was in no place and had no ability to actually enforce lawful transactions. And all it could do is deal with the fact that it was going to have this happen. So much in the same way, when we talk about these Christmas or Easter bans or bans against celebrations that existed during this time period, it's it's good to keep in mind that they're balanced against what was written on paper versus what was actually happening in society. And the fact that Christmas jumped back into society so quickly after all of this was removed, shows that likely it never left, not in any full sense of the word. Of course, the way Christmas worked after this is different and and is unique, but it's not certainly disappearing. The Tudor Christmas still carries forward to a degree, and certainly some aspects of holiday taking and worshipping work in similar matters, but Everything will change to some degree over time, regardless of these things. But either way, it's an interesting note in history and something that that people talk about quite often when we talk about Christmas and the so-called war on Christmas that people discuss in modern comments and concepts. But with all of that said and done, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you have a great 2023 and thank you once again. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast, or you can also help fund the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all who helped to fund the podcast. Without you, certainly it would be a lot harder to do this, and I really appreciate your help. And thank you, everyone. Take care. Have a great day and enjoy your week. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.
Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.